Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today's reading is from Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Westminster Chapel, we're in this great series from the letter called uh, Ephesians. Um, I'm really pleased to be here with you. I have been Wayladen, not with COVID, but with a nasty cold. So if I sound a bit snotty, um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, and that's the reason why I just want to start by praying just for God's strength and energy and power to come through my weakness this morning. And let's do that for all of us as we're listening. We want to engage with God's word, God's extraordinary living and active word. Why don't we just bow your head, close your eyes, whatever you do when you pray, um, I'm going to pray. Lord, we just thank you that you're here already in this service. And we're just asking in my weakness, in our weakness as listeners, in my weakness as preaching, Lord, come and show your power. Come and show your power as we've heard already that's seen in creation, the power of water, the power of life that's so much greater in Jesus. Let your word come alive now. Lord, let it meet the point of need in every person in this room and watching online. May they encounter you. Amen. Amen. Let me start this way by um, asking you or expressing, do you notice a difference if I put things this way? You must watch Star Wars The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. That's one must. And you must engage with your doctors about your cancer diagnosis. Now, one of those was much more important than the other, even for great Star Wars enthusiasts like myself. There's a, a seriousness to the latter must, right? And that's the must that Paul is using here in verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What I think he's setting up and really what I want to say through the Spirit today to you is that these words are really important. They may well be the most important words words that you will hear today, perhaps this week, possibly even in your life. Paul is saying, you must listen. You really, you really must pay attention. Why? Well, your well-being is at stake. Your happiness, your joy, 
That's at least the kind of individualistic way to <laughs> encourage you to engage. More importantly than that, you must listen because if you want to live a life worthy, then you need to know this. Worthy of what? Worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. Worthy of the death of Jesus. If you want to live a life worthy of the high calling of the church, and this is how Paul begins this second half section from chapter 4. If you want to live a life that's worthy of this high calling of the church, the mission of God, then you need to really pay attention. Let me tell you how. That's really what Paul is saying as he introduces that. What is this high calling of the church? We are called, God's people, to be the dazzlingly different, beautiful community of faith. Dazzlingly different to the dog-eat-dog society that chews people up and spits them out and discards them. And so many of us know what that's like. We are called to be a place of refuge. Refuge for the bruised, the broken, the downtrodden, the discouraged, the despairing, those who feel absolutely hopeless. We know that. We're a church of people like that. Hey, come, come join us. If that's how you feel, let us know. Hit request prayer in the chat. Have a conversation. Stay around afterwards. We are a church that's a refuge to bring hope and healing for people's souls. And this is what lies behind what Paul is writing about. This is why he's writing. This man, Paul, who is a killer of Christians, who meets God, Jesus, on the road to Damascus, and God says, I don't reject you, I can turn your life around, and hey, you can know a joy and be useful in my service like nothing before, and he's the chief example, that if you feel like your life is messed up, God will still accept you. He did, Paul. Paul is writing that we might know Christ, that we might learn Christ, that we might live for Christ. And so I want to give you just three points out of verses 17 to 24. And the first of those points is, don't be a chameleon. Don't be a chameleon. Now, Paul writes, doesn't he? He's saying, if you look at verse 17, you must not walk as the Gentiles walk. Walk is like a figurative way of describing live. Literally, live. Don't live as the Gentiles, the unbelievers live. Now, Paul would not have to say that to a predominantly uh, Christian audience unless it was possible to actually do that, to actually be a Christian but walk as the Gentiles are walking, to live like them. That's a warning. That's a wake-up call to every one of us to say we need to pay attention. We need to be alert that we don't become chameleons. Now, What's a chameleon? I'm sure you probably all know, but just for clarification, a chameleon is an old world lizard, the majority of which can change the color of their skin to fit in with the environment around them. Now, I really identify with that. I find I'm a very impressionable individual. And if you, if you get to know me, you'll soon discover this, that you might find me beginning to copy your accent or the way that you are speaking. It's very awkward. I think people are mocking them by doing that. I'm just very impressionable. I pick up the culture around me very easily. If someone has a distinctive walk down the street, I sometimes find myself sort of walking in rhythm with them, even copying them, praying that they don't look back in that moment. Um, it's part of the human nature, isn't it? That we, we conform to the culture that we're a part of. We like to fit in. 
Maybe you know that with, with fashion sense. I've said before about how I hated skinny jeans and that now I, I find myself, well, at least they're slim fit now, actually. Uh, I'll have you know. Uh, <laughs> um, we do that, don't we? We try and fit in. And the same with beauty as well. Our conception of what is, is human physical beauty. I spent six months, um, some years ago, living and working in Kenya, in Nairobi. And... Part of my challenge there was that the food was great. I loved the food. I ate too much of the food. And it's a very high-carbohydrate diet. So I started to, to get put on weight. Now, the Kenyan friends who knew me, they would say things like this to me. They would come up occasionally, those who knew me well, and say, Ah, oh, Howard, well done. You are fat. Uh, crushing statement if you're a British Westerner, right? Howard, well done. You have put on. Finally, you have put on. Well done. They had a different conception of beauty. Beauty there is a fuller figure. It's, it's a larger body shape than we would have in the Western world. Interesting how we conform to these ideas, these cultural expressions. Reminds me as well that true beauty is about Christ-like internals, not culturally changing around the world, externals. But I'm digressing. Right, we, we want to fit in, don't we? We want to be light, we want to be cool, we want to adapt. Um, we like to do that so we conform, but when we conform, we often also compromise. Things that were okay, or rather were never actually okay, never okay, become more and more okay as everybody else is doing them. I'll give you an example of that. That would be the culture of busyness that we live in today. A culture of busyness. So if I was to ask you, how is your week? You might be tempted to say, busy. And there'd be sort of mixed bittersweetness to that. Busy, yes, bad, but busy. I'm a bit proud that it was busy. Um, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Busy, we often say. And you've got this oddness where we kind of don't like it, but also it's like a badge of honor. Heaven forbid, I tell you, I wasn't busy at all. I've just lazed around, done absolutely nothing. Often I think he, he, this sort of stereotype would be, you know, I, had a, I had a great morning. I walked the kids to school whilst listening to a Christian sermon and responding to my work email. And that you kind of have those moments and people think like, I want to cheer you on and say, well done. You did so well. Actually, truth be told, you did none of that well. None of that. You weren't present to God. You weren't present with your kids. You weren't present um, in, any, in any way to those work colleagues and you're writing their emails. No, no, no. But how then, you might say, I just feel so busy. My life, so, so much is going on. I, I, I don't know how I can find time to be still and, and be, with, be with God. How do, I, how do I do that? Well, I want to say that one of the reasons that you feel that way could be because that you are marching in tune to the unholy rhythm, this rapid rhythm in our culture that says more, more, more all the time to you. Bigger, faster, better, greater. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep adding, achieving, accomplishing all the time or you're nothing. And that makes you really anxious, makes you really worried, makes you fret and concerned and feel troubled. And you're kind of like computer brain's RAM gets filled up with worry and anxiety 
So things and tasks that took you a lot less time now take you a lot longer. They feel more overwhelming, overwhelming and difficult and hard to achieve. And so much of your life ends up being sucked into your time. Your energy is given over to anxiety's grip on you through this worldly culture of busyness than actually just doing what you were called to do. So just one of the ways that we can get squeezed into the world's way of working and operating on its hamster wheel of worry. Another way that we can be conditioned is by being shaped by our families of origin. The family that you grew up with. You can learn unhealthy, even sinful ways of thinking, ways of acting, ways of being and operating. You can learn unhelpful ways of of dealing with conflict, of never dealing with conflict, or just exploding at conflict, or turning the door and walking out, or unhealthy ways of managing your emotions where you suppress them and you never talk about them, or you bottle them up and you, you burst out with them, or you tell everybody else about them, but you never talk to the family member to deal with the actual issue. These patterns go on. Addiction, favoritism that get passed down generation to generation. We can be so shaped by our families of origin. So my first sub-point really here is a bit of a wake-up call. comes in the form of a question. I've tried to make it feel a bit more appetizing. So in the words of the Jackson 5, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? So I, I was never going to sing that. Um, can you feel the squeeze? If you can't feel it, you can't stand firm against it, right? You've got you to feel it. That's the first sub-point. The second point is you just really don't want to be a cultural chameleon at all. Why? Well, Paul describes it here as being alienated. Alienated from the life of God. That's a pretty scary word, and I think it summarizes all these other dangerous-sounding words, darkened in their understanding, ignorant, hardness of heart, callous, sensual, greedy, impure. Why are we surprised about that? If we cut ourselves off from the God who is life, love, goodness, beauty, hope, joy, peace. We should expect to feel none of those things, but the very opposite of those things. In fact, I, I would ask you how, do you, how do you even experience those things without God? I don't even know how you can have a conversation about these deeper senses of meaning and love and purpose without assuming the very existence of God. Otherwise, we're not talking at an objective, real level, just a sort of personal, subjective, emotional level. But if you study this passage, you'll see that it's quite similar to another letter that Paul wrote to a church in Rome. And there's a a progression of sin that's there in chapter 1 of the letter we call Romans. And there's there's a progression that's happening here in this description that's being described of what, what happens to you if you get cut off and alienated from God. It's the ultimate slippery slope that you don't want to be on. Where you drift ever more further away from God. But where does it start? It starts in your mind. Begins in your thinking about God. We become desensitized to our creator. We suppress the truth about him. And we become blind to who he really is. This can happen to anyone. It can happen to some of the most 
intelligent and brightest people on our planet. Let me give you an example. Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheist, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in it, he says this. This extremely intelligent man says, I have described atonement, it's the cross, the central doctrine of Christianity as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. So the doctrine, the teaching, that's been around not just for a few decades or hundreds of years, but for more than two millennia, that is being described as the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever known, of God coming in the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who willingly, not by coercion, but chooses to go to the cross, to die in our place, in your place, to take the penalty, the judgment for your sin, your wrongdoing, the whole world's wrongdoing upon himself so that you get to go free. This moment where divine mercy and justice are meeting together to kiss a guilty world in love, to quote that great hymn, this topic, this subject, the cross, about which more ink, I would argue, has been spilt than any other subject in the world. This, this, this truth for which people even today are willing to die for, not to explode themselves and blow themselves up, but simply not to fight back against their persecutors so that they would model the way of Christ on the cross, that they might see through their martyrdom the love of God even for them as they're dying. And yet he can't see it. Millions and millions of believers can see it, yet he, he, can't, he can't see it. Why is that? And what is there here that is a danger that, that could come upon us as Christians that, that we might not be able to see or see as clearly as we should? God and his love and the cross. Well, this isn't the only explanation, but I think part of it comes from verse 22 and 17 of this passage. Verse 22, Paul writes about corrupting deceitful desires. And then in verse 17, uh, of futile, the futility of their minds, it's futile, that word also means empty, empty ideas. And I think this takes us back right to the beginning of the Bible. Now, you can get almost all of the teaching of, of Christianity from the first three chapters of the Bible. In the beginning, Satan was there and he hid his true identity and he twisted the truth of God's word and he turned Adam and Eve, our figurative representatives, against God, their benevolent maker. And so they see and they take and they eat of the forbidden fruit. Forbidden, not out of God's cruelty to them, but only because they weren't mature enough to eat of it yet. God always, I believe, had every intention that they would eat of that tree one day, but just not yet. You're not ready yet. But they chose to believe Satan instead of God. The outcome? Immediately they are in hiding. They are full of shame. They are afraid. They are arguing and they are blaming each other and squabbling and fighting, and that's a pretty good description of the human race ever since. And then Jesus comes at the cross and he squashes, crushes Satan's curse so that we can see 
who God really is in Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil always want you to see, to take, and to eat that which is not good. And they will try and make that which is not good look very good, look beautiful, look appealing. They'll make themselves look like that. Deception. I think a really good illustration of this for me recently came from Anne Hathaway, who plays the main character or witch from Roald Dahl's film adaptation from the book The Witches. And you can see on one side, trying to look glamorous, beautiful, important, powerful, significant, trying to fit in and draw adoration from all of us. And the other side is the reality. This is a witch who's hungry and wants to eat you alive until there is nothing left. An example from scripture, a true story of someone who fell hook, line, and sinker for this deception, these deceptive ideas, was a man called Demas. He began off well. Paul describes him in another letter called Philemon, verse 24, as a fellow worker. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, by this point, persecution has intensified. Paul is now in this second long uh, period in prison. And we read there, Demas, in love with this present world, in love with the world, has deserted me. Ouch. I sometimes to try and wake myself up, imagine how I would feel if Jesus said that over me. Howard in love with this present world, has deserted me. I don't believe I could lose my salvation. But I could disappoint God. Lady Comfort had seduced him. Sexy miss, don't do hardship, you'll be alright. Have a good life, live your best life now, had cast her spell upon him. He was captive to them. And he was becoming more and more lost even though they were tricking him into believing that he was more and more found. My first point is summed up like this, quite simply, don't be a chameleon. Don't be one, A, because you can become like one. The second point is put off. Put off. Or a long version of that would be put the nails in the coffin of the old self by taking deceptive ideas captive. To put off is more primarily, I I believe, at least initially about belief than it is about behavior. Putting off off wrong beliefs, wrong ways of, of thinking. You'll see that theme coming through from point number one. Now, I've never smoked. I'm asthmatic. I, I can't smoke. It would be pretty disastrous if I did. But I'm told that the best way to give up smoking that's absolutely critical is to change your beliefs about it, to believe without any shadow of a doubt how dangerous and harmful it is to yourself and how enslaved by it you are in order to get free of it. There's a lot of parallels there to wrong thinking in the Christian life. Paul is calling us to not walk in the way of the Gentiles, unbelievers, in the futility of their minds. This, from verse 17, fits very well with his parallel writings in the letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not 
let yourself be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's saying we, we're meant to take every wrong philosophical idea, every idea that is opposed to God, we must take captive to the truth of Christ. And then we're back here into verse 23, where he's saying, focus on the, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Yet so many people still somewhat naively today think that Christianity is all about doing good and not doing bad. That the Christian faith is just a form of behavioral modification for believers. Make them nice people. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice. I'm not saying we shouldn't do good. We're meant to do good deeds that people would glorify our Father in heaven. Absolutely. But I'm saying that that comes second. The primary thing about a Christian is what you think about God. That's what comes first. And then, or related to that, what you think about sin because the two are connected. Let me, let me try and explain this by um, some writings from William Wilberforce, written many years ago. Um, he's the social reformer, and he's describing nominal Christianity at, at, at the time of writing. He's writing just before um, the beginning of the 19th century. And he says, the, the bulk of, of nominal Christians have a most inadequate idea of the guilt and the evil of sin. We everywhere find reason to remark that, as was formerly observed, religion is suffered to dwindle away into a mere matter of police. This is a huge danger for the church, that we become police. Don't do that. Do this. Don't behave that way. Behave like this. You're not meant to do that. We're not primarily called to be the world's police, but it's conscience. He goes on, hence the guilt of actions is estimated not by the proportion in which, according to scripture, they are offensive to God, but by that in which they are injurious to society. Did you catch that? It's the harm to others principle. Uh, I was a lawyer, we studied this in jurisprudence, and there's much common grace in this idea of protecting people based around the harm to others principle. We don't want harm to others to be done. Therefore, we will protect people from harm being done to them. The big danger with this is it means that human beings become the shapers of this law and the majority typically get to decide what is classified as harm and not counts as harm and who gets to be another and who doesn't. So, the child in the womb. Other? Harm to other? The elderly person on palliative care, other? The person who's unconscious, are they an other? You start to get big questions and because of the corruption amongst human societies, you end up with often unjust laws. When we need a law outside of ourselves that is free from contamination and corruption, we need God's law to guide us. Wilberforce continues. He says that nominal Christianity betrays a fatal absence of the principle which is the very foundation of all religion, or Christianity, he means. Their slight notions of the guilt and evil of sin discover an utter want of all suitable reverence for the divine majesty. This principle is justly termed in scripture the beginning 
of wisdom. We would call it the fear of God. We've been studying this in, in clusters in our church. Um, when we bring life groups together, the fear of God, we so misunderstand it. It is a holy, happy, awesome reverence for the divine beauty and glory of God. Let me give you a picture of what I'm talking about here. And I think it would be that moment where Peter, the fisherman, has just been out fishing with Jesus. But he's been out the night before and they caught nothing and he expects nothing to happen. He's the experienced fisherman. He knows what he's talking about. Also, because they caught nothing, he may be frustrated by that because fish equal money. And no doubt he had debts to pay. They were under oppressive Roman taxation in that culture. And he goes out to catch fish with Jesus. He's obedient to Jesus' request to do that. What happens? They have a miraculous catch. They got more fish than they've ever seen before, jumping up into the nets. They've got to bring another boat over. They're both boats are now sinking under the weight of, of these fish. They've never seen a catch like that ever in their lives. Maybe there'd never been one in human history before Jesus did that extraordinary miracle. What is Peter's reaction to Jesus? He says to Jesus, get, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. There's a fear of God in that moment. But where has that fear of God come from? It's come, I think, from the privilege of, you've let me, who am I, a humble nothing fisherman, see this miracle. But not only see it, but benefit from it. Be able to pay off my debts with this. Be, be made wealthy through all these fish. You've kept me going. This is extraordinary. I tell you, he's trembling in fear at the goodness of God. You are, you are too merciful for me. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of your goodness. I'm, I'm scared of your incredible greatness and beauty and majesty. It is an awe. This is what it really means to have a right view of God, to really see him. And so the instruction here I think Paul is giving us back to these verses is put off all lesser thoughts about God. And it helps to be able to do that by putting off all lesser thoughts about sin. When you start to see the depths of the horror and evil of what sin is, the ugly stench, cesspool that it is, and how far then God has come, you start to see the depths of his love coming down and down and down and down and down and down to deal with the problem of sin. And you start to want to worship him in awe and reverence. We've got to put off all lesser thoughts, wrong thoughts about God. And then for the rest of this letter, Paul's going to come through and he's going to talk about putting off things and putting on things throughout chapters 4 to 6. But I want to just circle back to one thing again before we move into the final point, And that's this whole issue of busyness. Because I, I sort of opened that up but didn't resolve it. Busyness. This whole problem comes out of the evil idea, you are what you do. That's it summarized in its satanic greatness, if you like. You are, your worth, your value, everything about who you are is defined by what you do, what you accomplish, what you achieve. And Paul is saying that's absolute rubbish for a Christian. That is a lie from the pit of hell. 
He's shaped his entire letter based on this. It begins with chapters 1 to 3 about who you are in Christ, about the church. And then he goes into 4 to 6, and now this is how you should live in light of who you are. Being comes before doing. It's a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. You are by faith the moment you believe a beloved child of God. This is amazing. You have everything, every spiritual gift. Blessing is given you in Christ. Now live out of that. I wonder though if you've come and you're struggling with that because you're more of a human doing machine than a human being child of God. And it's just a moment just to recognize that to take that idea captive and say, that's not true. Don't let, if you like, the doctrine of human responsibility, it's all on me, wrestle the doctrine of God's sovereignty into submission in your life. Because you need to know, God is always in control. There are always enough hours in the day for you to accomplish what he's called you to. So just rest. Embrace your limits. Be human-sized. Don't be God-sized and trust God again. Put it off. Put it off. And as you're putting it off, the two really work together. Put on Christ. Put on. Now, hopefully you're already seeing that the Christian faith is very different from every other religion or belief system. And I include in that atheism and secularism. It's, it, it's very different. We are not called to follow a new set of rules. This is how you behave. We are called to follow a person. We are not called to put on behavior. Behave like this. Do this. No, we are called to put on a person, the greatest person the world has ever known, Jesus Christ. This comes out of verse 20. It says they learned Christ. They learned a person. How do we do this? Well, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I hope you have. That's the best decision that anyone can ever make in their life. If you want to do that, request prayer. Talk to one of us afterwards. We'll help you. Even if you're not ready, you think to do that today, but you just want to inquire a little bit more, come and chat to us. But if you've accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, you have already been made new. You are already a new creation in Christ. Already the, the old has gone and the new has come. You were dead spiritually in your trespasses and sins. Now you have been made alive. All of that old, worldly, negative, condemning way of thinking, that, that can go. That's not you anymore. You are now this new creation being in Christ. I know this personally. And my story, if you don't know it, is that I battled with body dysmorphic disorder on my journey of coming into faith. Basically, I, I hated the way I looked and would have self-attacking, condemnation, condemnatory thoughts about my physical appearance, even to the point where I really just hated myself. I had plastic surgery. Was so-so, wasn't fully happy with that, so I, I then saw a psychologist, I went on to Prozac, I then went to university, I met my first real Christians, and I encountered the good news about Jesus, and I found an acceptance and a love 
that I've been looking for all my life. That was Easter 2000. And then in November of that same year, the Christian Union had a, a weekend away, about 100 people away on a farm. And at the final service that we had together, we were taking communion, and I heard God speak in a way that I haven't really heard quite the same way since. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't that everybody else heard this. It was seven words put into my head that, that weren't mine. That just kept, where did that come from? Moment of like, that, that's, that's not my voice. Seven beautiful, life-changing words. You are no longer who you were. You are no longer who you were. This was so impactful for me that I made this crazy artwork back as a student then of my story. You are no longer who you were. And then something very interesting happened as I was preparing this message. This is no, no, absolutely the truth. I was typing up this part of this sermon and finished this sort of section and, and wasn't quite sure whether it was right to share my testimony again. Like, have people, haven't people heard that before enough? Do they really want me to share it again? And then... I'm, rather distracted because I'm still not completely free from the culture of busyness, looked at my email and in that moment an email came in and it was someone in our church who was applying what we've been talking about, truthing in love and one of the lines said this, remember the past is gone kaput, you're not that old insecure Howard anymore <laughs> and people say God isn't in control every moment, such a moment for me. But then I felt God came off the back of that and said, now Howard, I want you to underline this. I want you to highlight this. I want you to emboss this. I want you to make it as bold and powerful and as clear so that people can really understand and get their heads around. Once they believe in me, the old really has gone. They really now are a new creation. And I want them to live as the new creation, not in the old, not even with one foot in it. I want them to know all of, of who I am and who I've called and made them to be. This is an invitation that God is giving you. But it's so easy, isn't it, to, to go back to the old address? Even though that person doesn't live there anymore. We all do that. It reminds me of a true story of a, a man, a, a soldier called Lieutenant, Lieutenant Hiro Onada. He's a Japanese soldier who was in the Second World War. And he was fighting in the Philippines. And the war, Second World War, had come to the end, but he couldn't reckon that to be true. So he carried on living, fighting in hiding, hiding out, always looking over his shoulder, never having peace, anything like that. For 29 more years. True story. It took his original sending officer to come and find him to personally rescind the orders for Onada to surrender. He had wasted 29 years of his life living in the old when a better new had come.
I'm urging you not to make that mistake. Don't do it. Step into the new and enjoy the newness. How do we do that? Well, we go back to verse 20. It's about learning Christ. You've got to learn a, a person. You've got to get to know him. Do you know how my wife and I, we did not get to know each other by stalking each other on Facebook from a distance. It's a little dating tip there. We met in person. We, we went on dates. We got to know each other. We were vulnerable. We, we opened up. We, we shared. You've got to do the same with God. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to be real with him. You've got to, got to enjoy his presence. You've got to slow down to be still, to, to get to know him. But it's not just about knowing facts about him. To learn Christ is to love like Christ. We don't want to just know facts about Christ. Let me illustrate that. So if, if you came to me and offered me some parenting advice because you've read some books and things like that, but you didn't have your own kids, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm probably going to be polite, but I'm going to ignore everything you're going to say <laughs> because you don't know what you're talking about. And I know that because before I had kids, I maybe thought I knew what I was talking about. And now, <laughs> and then you realize when, you get, you, when you've actually had them, you're like, oh, wow, I had no idea what I didn't know back then. We need to make sure we're not doing that in our Christian walk. You can't just know facts about Christ. You've got to actually say yes to his invitation to join him on mission. You can't just know, oh, I love this God. He's gentle and lowly. No, you've got to go out and be gentle and lowly to others. You've got to become the friend of sinners. You've got to meet Christ and experience his love flowing through you as you meet the people that he's sending you to, who he's already put you with, to love them, to care for them, to loosen the cords of injustice, to untie the yokes around people, to help liberate and encourage and set people free. That's what we're called to do. That's how we learn Christ and we, we know him. To know Christ is a powerful thing. To live that way becomes the embodiment of righteousness and holiness. Verse 24, Jesus reveals that to us. And as we learn him, we become righteous and holy in our revelation to the world of who we have become through faith in him. The prophet Daniel put it like this, chapter 11, verse 32. The people who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. Do you know him? To put on Christ is also to put on peace because he is the prince of peace. It means the war is over. This is the great good news. You don't have to carry on fighting to try and prove your worth, your value in this world. Uh, fight for significance, fight for security, fight for acceptance, fight for people's love to be impressive and cool and work so hard to all of that. I tell you, that war is over in Christ the moment that you believe. Don't waste a second, let alone 29 years, trying to do all of that. You get everything through your relationship with Christ. That war is over, but then you get invited to fight in a different kind of war. A war to set people free from the world, the flesh, and the devil who are trying to blind people that they would not know the truth. And we're called to come against all of that deception through our words, through our lives, through our actions that people really, really might know Christ. Don't be a chameleon. Put off falsehood. Put on Christ.
And let's work together that the world would know the amazing peace and love and beauty of our God. Let me pray. Merciful God, we come to you recognizing so many times where we have fallen short, where we have allowed ourselves to be conformed and conditioned to this world, how we have marched to its drumbeat. But Lord, we thank you that you forgive us. As soon as we pray it, you promise to do that. And we ask you to clean us up and to unblock our ears and to open our eyes to hear your voice, to see your glory, that we might live for you. Help us to be dazzlingly, beautifully different. Help us to put on you, your way, your life, your character, your values, as we step out and go on mission for you. Help us to learn your way, to trust you and to love you that hundreds if not thousands might be set free from all the evil deception that's out there that's seeking to destroy their lives. We thank you that you've come. We thank you that the truth sets us free. We thank you that we're alive when we were dead. Help us to revel and rejoice in the new creation identity and being beloved of you, adopted, forgiven, set free, liberated from all the lies. Help us to worship you now rightly, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.